You know this story. In Dunstable, 19th century, a little boy called Oliver. You know, whilst the... Uh, whilst the... In 19th century, Oliver and his, and his uh, fellow boys there in a workhouse, starving, living off gruel, uh, whilst the governors are enjoying food, glorious food. And because of their hunger, Charlie gets a, Oliver gets a short straw and he goes up to the governor to ask for more food, but he does so in fear and trepidation to approach the governors. It was unheard of. Who knows what they may do? And they responded terribly to him. I'll tell you that story because it captures the essence. Could I just return that a little, please? Thank you. It just captures the essence of what he was like under the old covenant. How life was for them. What he was like approaching God. How he was wrought with dangers. There was a chasm between God and humanity. And God made sure that the people living under covenant with him, in relationship with him, understood that. That there was a divide. That, that, that there were things put in place. And we said this morning already, we couldn't get through our gate. That's kind of how it was then. You just could not get anywhere near God. It started, I mean, Katie, thank you for that uh, lovely story of creation. It started beautifully, didn't it? Uh, with God and his creation. But soon sin destroyed all of that. And in order for any form of relationship to continue between God and his creation, Mount Sinai was necessary. But Mount Sinai, we're going to see shortly, was absolutely fearful. Dangerous. You could lose your life. I'm going to look at that together now. You could lose your life by Mount Sinai and all they represent. And Hebrews chapter 12 shows us that. It gives us a picture of Mount Sinai and all they represent, the Old Covenant. And then what it does for us, it doesn't leave us there. It then moves the camera to the new covenant, to Mount Zion, if you like, and to the covenant of Jesus, and shows us why the new covenant is glorious, better, brilliant, and how the new covenant does away with fear. I said last week, fear has no place in the Christian's relationship with God. Or does, but it's not to be confused with fear. And you'll see in the New Covenant why fear is no longer necessary. So we're looking at these few verses in chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Uh, and our heading is just simple, simply, from fear to love. From fear to love, from the old to the new, from fear to love. Verse 18, you talking to the people of God, the scattered people of God who, who are under persecution at this time, it's a plural you. He's talking to the church that's scattered. Okay, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. So that's what we've not come to. Some years back, I think it's been at least 15 years, uh, we were in India, we were visiting some missionaries and we went to one of these cities where it was a, a popular place for some of the statues of the gods of the local people. And there was this 
colossal statue of one of the gods. Colossal. Uh, and we go near it, obviously to do a bit for religion, kidding. Uh, we go near it just, just to explore what this statue was like close up. And I notice on the base of the statue of this god of the local people, a little sign. And it says, I oh, will have that picture please, Ricky. Uh, and the next one. It says, do not touch. I thought it was interesting. I took note of that. I've got a picture somewhere. I just wasn't able to, to find it. It's okay taking all these pictures, but you've got to find them. Uh, do not touch. And, I, and it just stuck in my mind. He is God for these people. But he's inaccessible. And as we read this in, in Hebrews, it, it captures some of the verses of Exodus. You have not come to a mountain, so you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Can you see what he's saying? What God is saying to his people? Don't come near. Stay away. Don't you dare touch. Anything to, to do with me, anything around me. Remember what he said to Moses when he was about to approach God? Hey, hey you, get away until you've made some preparation before you dare come anywhere near me. Who do you think you are? The God of that first covenant, our God, because of sin, could have no contact, it seems, with people. They were barred from this mountain. Moreover, notice that verse 19, those who heard his voice, heard God speak, begged that no further word be spoken. I mean, we, take it, we take it granted, don't we, that we can hear God speak, that we've got access to these words. You know, we, we have it on loudspeaker, but here, listen to these. They begged that God would no longer speak, that his word wouldn't be heard. It's it's, an, it's another mark. It, it, we're told here it comes in trumpet blasts, in preparation. These are loud things made, made so that people are in fear. And when he speaks, it was such an awe-inspired thing. It wasn't even human sounds. When God spoke, it seems that all that was heard was thunder. Here's what Exodus says of this occasion. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, so the trumpet is blowing, as we've seen in Hebrews, is getting louder and louder. This isn't a disco party when the loud music helps you to get into the groove. This is loud sound to make you more fearful. Okay? It got louder and louder, you know, arousing this fear. And then God speaks. But when God speaks, it's not words they hear in Exodus 19. It's what? It's... Thunder. And I know we take thunder, you know, it can be really interesting, amazing to watch and listen to. But you imagine yourself out in some um, hillside next to something high and there's just you and there's lightning and thunder, thunder and lightning. You know, that's a fearful thing. This is meant to be scary. When God spoke, his voice wasn't intelligible to the audience. It was as though there was thunder crashing you got loud sound. you got the sound of thunder, God speaking. And it's so awe-inspiring, so frightening. They begged God. They begged him, verse 19, not to speak. This place was so fearful that all of creation is affected. Notice in verse 20 that if, if even animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. 
creation, we may sometimes forget this, the fall hasn't just severed humanity's relationship with God. The fall has severed all of creation's relationship with God. Even the animal kingdom, it seems, and God won't have even livestock come anywhere near him. Now, of all the people there who are in fear and trepidation, who dare not go near, who can't stand the voice of God because it's like thunder crashing, of all the people there, you'd expect Moses, who's had a special visitation from God, who's been called by God, to be able to withstand some of this. But listen to Moses in verse 21. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses, even Moses is trembling with fear. I don't know if we've ever captured the essence of what old covenant worship was like. God was literally, in modern terminology, in the strongest method I could, words I could put to you, was an object of fear. He was unapproachable. He, was, he gave them a law. Amongst all this, we haven't looked at it just, just yet, but amongst all this, God speaks the law to Moses, but it's an impossible law. An absolutely impossible law. He gives them a sacrificial system. I don't know if you know this, but he gives them a sacrificial system that is, oh, I was looking for the German word, word, kaput. You know that, didn't you? I mean, you're aware of that, aren't you? The whole sacrificial system, says Hebrews back in chapter 10, doesn't work. It was broken when he was given. So, so they have a God who's unapproachable, a law that is impossible, a sacrificial system that doesn't actually atone for sin. A God who is divided from his creation. That's the old covenant. The synactic covenant from Mount Sinai. This was a covenant made so that people could relate to God, but all he reveals is that men are still alienated from their God. And he's such an awe-inspiring, frightening being that they dare not. And when the, you know what happened when the sacrificial system finally got going? Only one guy could get near God. Once a year. And remember how he would go in? With fear and trepidation. That's how religion used to be. And so, let me take you back to the New Testament. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. When you read these words... They sound so tame. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses. You can read that and think, well, that's a, that's a nice thing, isn't it? No! When you read that, here's a clue. It's one of the reasons I'm encouraging us to buy Bible commentaries. Okay? Is, is, that, is that we have to understand how the Bible is to be read. What well, the New Testament does, whenever it quotes the Old Testament, here's a fisherman here. Uh, I mean, I know it's laughable, isn't it? But hey, we'll, we'll just entertain him. Here's a fisherman here. Okay? Right. So, now I've lost my train of thought, haven't I? Look, here's what the Old Testament does. When he casts his net over the Old Testament and quotes a verse, you may already know this, we've done it on the theological course that we run here starting again in the new year if you want to sign up for the next module. When he, when, he, when he quotes an Old Testament verse or chapter or word, it's drawing in that entire context with it. 
It's not the claw that dredges up all of that thing. So when this says, for the law was given, it's drawing with it everything associated with that. It's drawing in the, the fire, the smoke, the thunder, uh, uh, the sounds, the sights, the awe, the fear. When you read those verses in John chapter 1, verse 17, and the law was given through Moses, you're meant to, you're meant to shake in fear. It's not a good thing. I remember, I mean, we watch kiddies' movies all the time, obviously, because of the kids, and even without the kids. Okay? <laughs> Scooby Doo is one of those. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Scooby Doo. If you've got kids, you've probably seen it. Uh, and there's a, there's a, can we have the picture, please, Ricky? Sorry. There it is. Uh, and, and there's a scene here where Scooby there is a dog that can talk, and he's fallen out with his mate Shaggy, uh, and he's been captured by this baddie. Uh, and they're going to make him a sacrifice. Scooby hasn't got a clue what a sacrifice is. And he's on this chair being led to this sacrifice, and they're trying to warn him, Scooby, you're going to be sacrificed. And he's sitting there going, yeah! Sorry. <laughs> Sounded like Scooby, didn't I? <laughs> I'm a sacrifice. <laughs> and he thinks that's wonderful. He's going to be a sacrifice. <laughs> okay. And Shaggy says to him, no, Scoob, that's not a good thing. Scoob, that's not a good thing. And look, here's the thing. When we read, you can see how, how, how often I watch these movies, can't you? Okay, when we read in John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. That's not a good thing, Scoob. That's not a good thing. That should send a shiver down our spines. That statement carries all the gravity of Mount Sinai. That law was a frightful, fearful thing. It, it wasn't given. Here's the thing. This is, this is what they didn't understand. It wasn't given to convert them. This is where they got it so badly wrong. It was given to put the fear of God in them. Do you get it? That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to be, this is what I'm like. This is what I expect. And you never, you will never qualify so stay away that's what the law was saying it wasn't an invitation you, know, you can't get this right and you're in it was a warning you can never meet my standard stay away that's what the law was doing and so when we read that the law was given through Moses it ought to send a chill through our spine because it was reminding us of how alienated Humanity, even under that covenant, was from their God. But John 1.17 continues, and this is where Hebrews is going. John 1.17 continues. The law was given through Moses, yeah. But, ah, the but's not in there. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a contrast of the deepest depth, okay? The law, fear, gloom, smoke, death was given through Moses, but through Jesus Christ, grace and truth. These are as far apart 
as our North Pole is from the South. And this is what Hebrews 12 is going to show us now. It's giving us, giving us these stark contrasts. It's reminding, it's reminding these people where they've come from and where they're going. Okay, so back to Hebrews 12. Our second heading, our first heading was from fear, the Old Covenant, now the New Covenant, to love. We're going from fear to love. There's a massive transition. These two covenants are nothing alike. They may be first and second, but that's as close as they get because they are worlds apart, these covenants. So the second covenant is what John, the same apostle who wrote the gospel, who wrote about the, the old and new covenants, writes in, in his little, little letter, 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The new covenant drives out fear. Fear has no place in the new covenant. Because in the new covenant, there is no punishment. Whatever you face and whatever you experience, Christian, you are never being punished. Do you get that? Do you know that? God never punishes under the new covenant. Because? 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 The punishment has been felt, experienced. How much of it? How much of the punishment for sin? The whole gravity of it. There's no punishment under the new it's what Romans 1 says, Romans 8 1. There is now no condemnation, there's no punishment, there's no condemnation, there's no fear. And I want to encourage you, friends, I want you to retain an awe of God, a respect for Him, but no fear. No fear. So, verse 22 But you have come, not to that mountain, not to Zion, uh, Sinai, but to Zion, but you have come to Mount Zion. The Israelites had escaped from Egypt, trekked through the desert, walked through the Red Sea, came to Mount Sinai, and there were landed with a bombshell. That God was going to be still alienated from them. But now in verse 22, we've come to another Sinai. Do you see what's going on? Can you see the parallelism? Parallelism? The Bible is full of them. Again, it's why you, I'm going to keep selling this book this morning. It's why you need a commentary. It does these connections for you. Okay? The parallelism here. Oh, that's too many L's, but never mind. Okay. But you have come to not Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to a new mountain, a brand new mountain. They're geographically worlds apart. They're symbolically worlds apart. Two mountains from which God is going to visit his people. One in fear. The other, this is meant to evoke everything that Sinai doesn't. It's an imagery of now drawing near to God without the smoke, without the fire, without the thunder. We're told that Mount Zion is equivalent to the heavenly Jerusalem. That Jerusalem was a picture of God's presence. We now, we've come into the place of God's presence. One of the reasons, look, if we had a church building, what we would not have in this building, by order of the management, the, the leadership team, okay, is, and I've seen this in many churches in the UK, 
my house or, or this is the house of God or my house shall be called the house of prayer because this building is not the house of God. But you are. When we gather around the heavenly Jerusalem, it means that we have gathered, each of us here, in this gathering this morning, we have come, forget the building, to the gathering of God's people to his presence. You are in the presence of God as a community now. You are in the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to a mountain. And I didn't look very big, but you have. You've come to a mountain. Moreover, this, is, this isn't just the place, of, the place where God's presence dwells. It's where he reigns, the city of the living God. It's something that the old covenanters were looking forward to. Abraham was looking, we're told, in Hebrews 11. He was looking for the city of foundation, a city where God reigned, as he were. We've come there. The new covenant brings you to the city of God. There is still the physical reality. We are still heading to a real city, hence Hebrews 13, for we do not for here we do not we do not do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So we are in God's reign in a spiritual sense, but we're still looking for a city. We're looking for a new earth. Moreover, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Who believes in angels? We all ought to. Thank you, Pam. We all ought to. We don't believe half the Bible if we don't. Look what they do here. In our gathering, in being called to God in this new covenant, in what we're doing right now, we're in the presence of God and we're in the presence of angels. Wow. Hey, that's a special thing. Remember, remember what Jesus said that the angels do over the, uh, the conversion of one sinner? They rejoice. Look at these angels in the, in the presence of thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Do you know this? The angels love it that you're here. They're in joyful assembly. They're looking at you, Stephen. And going, Here's Stephen. Look at him sitting there, called to God's presence, called into fellowship with him. They're rejoicing. They're about us. In, in fact, in Hebrews, we're told that they are ministering to us. Are not all angels ministering spirits who are here to serve? Who, who do angels serve? Yeah, you. You. Sent to minister to us. And that angelic realm that Jesus says is at his command when they were going to crucify him, that he could have called upon. Okay? That angelic realm is surrounding the church of the living God. Which means they're not just ministering to us to comfort us. What else can they do? What did Jesus say they could do at the cross? What else can this angelic force do? They're like an army. They're like an army. What's her name? Amy Grant sings a song. I was going to quote him, but... It would have made my sermon too long, but I'm doing it anyway, aren't I? She sings a song about angels. 
who'd been watching over her, making sure that that car didn't hit her or that thing, that accident didn't occur. Hey, we have no idea that, have we? What that angelic realm has been doing for us this morning in our preparation, in us traveling here, in us gathering now, not just ministering to us, but protecting us. And far more than that, let me tell you about a friend of mine, David Footed, from West Bromwich in the black country in the UK, the motherland. Okay? Right. David was, he was, he was outside of faith. His wife had just started going to church. He had no time for it. He happened to be in WH, WH Smith's. Do we have any of those in Australia? It's a news agent. Okay? Okay, WH, you remember those, don't you, Emma? Okay, WH Smith's is a news agent. Okay, it's where you used to go and read all the magazines and not pay for them. Okay? <laughs> yeah, really. I didn't have much money, you see. That's my excuse. David thought he was reading a magazine in there, you know, free of charge. Okay, when, when a, a tramp, what's the word for a tramp in Australia? A homeless person. Okay, came alongside him and began to tell him about Jesus. They had this conversation. Eventually, they walked across. The, well, we'll have the pictures, please, Ricky. Carry on. There. Eventually, that's West Bromwich Town Centre. Um, eventually, they went over to a pub. Okay? And went there for a drink, the two of them. They went to the bar, bought a drink, sat on the stool. We're having a drink, and this tramp was telling David about Jesus. Sometime in the conversation, David dropped something off the bar, bent down to pick it up, and when he got back up, the gentleman had just disappeared, completely disappeared. And he asked the barman, he goes, have you seen the guy I came in with? And you know what I'm going to say, don't you? The barman said, you came in alone. It was an acquaintance of mine in the UK. He was later converted, became a pastor. He's told that story all over the place. Angels ministering to us, protecting us, rejoicing with us. And even seemingly, make it, at times, making themselves visible. It's why. Hey, that's the, that's the reason to go and feed the homeless person next time we see one. It just may be an angel testing us. Seriously. There to minister to us. Moreover, whether it says to the church of the firstborn, to the church of the firstborn, Charles Philip Arthur George. We'll have the picture, please. There he is. And his siblings there. Anne and Andrew. Can you go back a bit, please, for me? Thank you. Anne and Andrew and Edward. Okay? Four siblings. What's unique about Charles? They're similar in biologically, DNA, and everything else you can imagine. What's unique about Charles? He's the firstborn. And that is absolutely significant. That ranking in birth means everything. Who is awaiting to be king of our country? Charles. Charles. All, and in fact, he's not even the firstborn, is he? Anne is. Am I right there? It's Anne, isn't it? 
I thought Anne was because he's a, he's a, he's a boy. She, she, she doesn't, okay, so, so, so he's the firstborn. I always thought he was second. Because they changed the rules recently where the girl can be the firstborn now as well. Okay, so here's Charles. All that distinguishes him from his sibling is his birthright. Being the firstborn is absolutely critical. And here's the thing. In Scripture, who is the firstborn? Think about this one. There's someone in Scripture and we're told that they are the firstborn. It's Jesus. He's the first one. In Colossians, Colossians 1.18. Uh, uh, he's the head of the church. He's the f- beginning and the firstborn. When, that's it, when he said that of Jesus, we have to understand Scripture doesn't mean, oh, and this is what some of the religions outside of Christianity would use. Say, oh, therefore he was born and he can't be divine. Can you see the point? When Scripture says firstborn, we're not to think of this as a biological reality. By firstborn, we're to think of it as the, supreme, the supremacy lies with him. He's the firstborn of God. He is the heir of God. He, he, all that is God belongs to Jesus. And here's the wonderful thing that, that Hebrews is telling us, and it's incredible, Hebrews is telling us, that, that we are the church of the firstborn, which means that you and I, collectively as the church of Jesus Christ, are regarded by God as equal to Jesus in status, in recompense, in reward, in what belongs to us. Romans tells us, now if you are children, then you are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. You are due all of heaven and earth. It belongs to you. You know when we're on the new planet, the new heaven and earth, we won't be there as residents, tenants rather, We'll be there as proprietors. It'll be ours. Heaven and earth will belong to us. As much as heaven and earth and all of creation belongs to Jesus, as heirs, the church gets all of that. And so Romans 8.32, he says, Having given us all, all of that, there's nothing that he will withhold from us. He will graciously give us all things. And 23. We have our names written in heaven. Remember when Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons bow to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. To be known in heaven. Hey, you know, know, we all want to be known by somebody, don't we? With someone with a name, it kind of gives us some kudos. There's nothing that gives you more kudos than the fact that your name, and your name here, we're not looking at Sylvia here. Sylvia, by your name, we don't, I don't think this means Sylvia Scootery. I don't think that's what's, uh, have I pronounced that correctly? I haven't pronounced it correctly. I'm, I'm in trouble now. I'm in trouble now. Yes, of course it is. I know that. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I don't think it's, the, the point is that it's our name. It's, it's, it's us. It's, it's us, it's, it's what's behind the name. You, your character, your person, everything about you is, is established in heaven, is recorded in heaven, is known in heaven. Which means, it's a bit like, uh, here's, here's an illustration of it, there's no picture, Ricky. 
if you're a citizen of a country like Australia and you end up in a country that's third world and you find yourself in trouble, okay, what does that mean? And you're, you're at the end of injustice. What will your country do for you? Because you're known in your country, because your name is written, as it were, you know, uh, 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 in the government, what will your government do for you? Your government, Australian government, will move heaven and earth to aid its citizens in another country. God will move heaven and earth for you. Your name is in heaven. You're known there, you're recognised there, and you will be full for there. Your name's written in heaven. Moreover, you have come to God, the judge of all men. He is the judge of all men. He is the judge of all creation. But we know that Jesus says these words. Truly I tell you, that he who believes has eternal life and will not be judged. We do come to the judge of all the earth but not as our judge. That's something we have to... This is why there's no fear. You will never face God's judgment. Because again, Jesus has faced it. We come to him, but we're welcomed by him. Moreover, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. We've already, already said that we have an entourage that's angelic. This is a massive entourage. We not only have an entourage that is angelic and that's divine, divine and angelic, we also have an entourage, the church, the people of God, that's made up of Hebrews 12. We are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. We are surrounded, friends, by an entourage of all those that have gone before us. We don't know in what sense. It's possibly that the writer of, Hebrew, writer of Hebrews is saying that all those who have gone before us somehow are, are, are watching us, possibly, are certainly with us. And I think at the very least, what, what we've been told here is, is that in some sense, they're with us, egging us on, encouraging us on, you know, that are supporting the crowd, going, come on, you can do it, we've done it. We've come before you. You're nearly there. One more step. We, we, we've got this camaraderie with, 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 with everyone before us. I mean, Catherine's at the junior church, I think, with Mrs. Bean. And with Abraham. We have this entourage of these holy men and women who've been made right in Christ beyond their deaths, who, who are, as it were, our support system. In exactly what way, we're not quite sure. And then finally, and this is what I've been trying to get to, here's the ultimate. This is the most iconic statement of the new covenant in Hebrews 12, 24. We have come, finally, ultimately, to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. We did this in Galatians. You are not under that old covenant, under Moses, under Mount Sinai. You're, you've come to a new mountain, and in this new mountain, there's a new 
covenant. A covenant is a, is a means by which two parties can relate. That one has been written off, it's been sealed, it's closed, it's completed, it's been fulfilled in Jesus. In the new one, established by Jesus, it has dynamics that are completely, completely contrary to the first one. Here's what we're told, that with the first one, Romans 3.20 tells us, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. The works of the law, the law was the spearhead of the old covenant. And I've said this in my sermon earlier, and if it confused you, here's the answer. That the old covenant, is sacrificial system, atoned for no sin, and its law made no person righteous. The old covenant, the sacrificial system, atoned for no sin, says Hebrews 10. And Romans 3 says, its law made no one righteous. Listen to this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No matter what attempt you make on the law, you can never be made right. So that old covenant, the Ten Commandments, and all of the law associated with it, that only condemned, only brought fear, have been set aside. It's why Jesus, and, and, and it's one of the things that Jesus says, and he proved this to them because they, they didn't seem to quite get it. Remember when they were about to stone the woman caught in adultery, and then Jesus writes on the ground. Here's my take on it what he's doing when he's writing on the ground. What wrote the Ten Commandments? The finger of God. What did Jesus write on the ground? Here's my take on it. He was reminding them, was demonstrating to them. That it was his finger that wrote the law. And it says to him, he used without sin, cast the first stone. And how many of them cast stones? None. Because they all knew. Because you know what was happening at that moment, don't you? Because they all thought they were perfect. They all thought they were wonderful, especially the Pharisees. That's where they were going to stone her. And when Jesus says he used without sin, cast the first stone, you know what he was doing, don't you? He was convicting them. He was bringing the law before their sight. And one by one, they knew that they all fell short of the law. They all walked away. Jesus now introduces us to a covenant that is better than Moses'. He's the mediator, verse 24, of a new covenant. The old has gone, the new has come, and this one, this one, does what the first one could not do. We said this earlier, here's the verse, Hebrews 10, 4. In the old covenant, the blood never atoned for sin. Look, listen to this, Hebrews 10, 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They never did atonement. And so Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, we saw it at communion a couple of weeks ago, took the cup and said these words. Listen to this. This is my blood of the covenant. And his blood works. It is for the forgiveness of sins. Finally, a sacrifice that works. Finally, a sacrifice that atones. Jesus says, the blood of the covenant, for a working sacrifice 
the forgiveness of sins. Reason, the reason you and I have no fear before God, don't you ever fear him. And let me say one thing to you here. Okay, yeah, don't fear him except when you've done something bad. No! No matter how bad you've been, and if you're honest, you've all been terrible, me included, even this morning, don't fear him. He is never to be feared because all of your sin is atoned for. We do not fear him because there's no sin for which we're to fear. When we stand before Jesus, he doesn't see Adam. When we stand before God the Father, he doesn't see Adam. Who does he see? He sees Jesus. He looks at you as though you're perfect. And so we come to one when there's no fear because we're forgiven. The smoke is gone. The fire is gone. The do not touch sign is gone. Remember? He said, don't you dare touch the mountain. Look, listen to Jesus. What does he say to Thomas? Touch me, Thomas. Touch me. Feel me. Come close to me. Handle me, Thomas. And who is Jesus? God. The do not touch sign has gone. That awful voice that spoke fear to the people is now a voice that welcomes the people. What does God say in Jesus to the Israelites? In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me. He's no longer stay away. It's come to me. Come to me. In John 14, where we're told in, on the mountain that they weren't even to look. It was such a fearful sight. In John 14, look, he says, anyone who's seen me has seen God. You can now look upon me without fear. You're not going to fall apart. You're not going to burn up. And finally, and finally, we're no longer under the law of death. I've said this to you before. You've never heard me preach the Ten Commandments, have you? No church I've ever been in has heard me preach the Ten Commandments. Because you're not under that law. It's gone. It was a law of death. And we're under the law of grace. And here in Romans 6.14, you are not under law. You're not under Moses. You're now under grace. It's the contrast. You choose. You can live under Moses and his law. Or you can live under Jesus and his grace. And now finally, all the trembling and fear is gone. Hebrews 4.16. Listen to this. This is how we approach this mountain. This is how we approach God under this covenant. Not in fear and trembling, but 4.16. Let us approach the throne of grace. How? Someone read the words. Shout the words. Amen. What spirit did, did you... Let me ask you. With what spirit did you come to church this morning? Because if you're aware of your sin, if you've done anything terrible last night or terrible this morning or terrible last week, this is how you'd come to church. If you come, if you manage to drag yourself here because you no longer felt worthy to be here, is with your head down in shame, hoping that God doesn't look at you because you're a filthy, terrible sinner. You're living under the wrong covenant, man. You're operating under the wrong covenant. This one says to sinners, 
come to me. Come to me. Remember, in fact, that was so obvious. Remember, remember what they said of him? This guy is with... He, he, he gets them all to come to him. He went to Zacchaeus, one of the biggest sinners of the country. And what did he say? Come here. I want to eat with you. <laughs> so no, I don't care what you've done, Christian. You belong here. Don't you ever come here with fear. You come not to that mountain, but to a new mountain, to Jesus. And you come. Let us therefore, let us then approach the very presence of God with confidence. Because, listen, because there's mercy and grace to be found in your time of need. From fear to love. Christian, we have Jesus. We have Jesus. We come to Jesus. We gather around Jesus. We dwell in Jesus' presence. We have Jesus' blood to cleanse us. We have Jesus' pardon. And we have Jesus in us. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, there's a name I love to sing. I love to sing of his worth. I can't think of the hymn, but it goes something like that. And it's all about Jesus. You have Jesus. So come. You have nothing to fear. Come to him. Worship him. Revel in him. Draw near to him.